Remain standing. Again, my name is Andrew Forrest. I'm the pastor for this congregation. We want you to feel welcome in our church. In fact, whatever your week has been like or your life's been like, whatever you look like, whether you believe what we believe or even if you vehemently disagree, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, you're welcome in this place this morning. So let's have a word of prayer. God, I pray that you take my words and speak through them. That you take our thoughts and think through them. And then, God, I pray that you take our hearts and teach us to find our hope, our security, and our ultimate rest in you. This is what we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. And while you're being seated, you may notice that we have new pew cushions down here on this level. That means, as I calculated, I can go about 17 minutes longer and you'll feel fine. So be grateful this morning. I want to talk this morning about something that's been on my heart for a long time, but recently has been made more acute. Last night, I officiated at a wedding, as I do very, very often. We have a young congregation. And every time I've ever officiated a wedding in the past, of course, I thought about my own wedding and what that was like and how blessed I am to be married and how grateful I am for my wife. As I sit there, at the t- stand there at the front of the aisle and see the doors open in the back and see the bride walk down. But over the last year, I've also been thinking about what it's going to be like one day, God willing, when it's my daughter who's getting married. See, if it had been up to me, I would have thought we'd have a whole baseball team full of kids by now in our house. We don't. Life doesn't work out the way you wanted it. And we're blessed to have two children. We had a little girl born last year, which was a surprise to all of us. We're not finder-outers. And so it wasn't until that we're there in the delivery room that we realized we have a little girl. And I think it's part of God's humor or irony towards me because I only grew up with brothers and I know very little about women, which I know is surprising. And so the whole thing, that wasn't a joke. The whole thing has been just a huge blessing for me to see what it's like to be a dad to a daughter. And I am so grateful that God in his wisdom gave us her and gave her to us. So I've been thinking a lot about what it's going to be like one day, God willing, if she walks down the aisle. But I've also been thinking a lot about the contrary, what it's going to be like perhaps if it's not easy for her to get married or find a husband. See, one of the things that I have personal experience with now being a pastor for this congregation is many, 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 many eligible, amazing, forthright, responsible, faithful women in our congregation who are single and wish they would be married. And so one of the questions I'm going to raise today is why are there not more marriageable husbands? Where are all the eligible men and what we can do about it? So it's going to sting a little bit this morning. It's going to hurt a little bit because I'm going to point out some things which we all know to be true but which we would prefer to pretend weren't true. But I find that facts are your friends and it's important to name reality as we see it. And then we'll talk about how we can do anything about it. See, the reason this has been on my mind also recently is we've been reading through the wisdom literature in the Bible. We've been reading through the book of Proverbs, which is about how to live in the world as it is. And next week, we're moving into the Song of Solomon, which is a a love poem, an erotic love poem between this young man and this young woman. And three times in Song of Solomon, the same advice is given by the young woman. Here's what she says, first in Song of Solomon, chapter 2. O daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She says it again in Song of Songs, chapter 3, virtually identical, same thing. Don't awaken or stir up love until it pleases. And finally, she closes by saying this in the eighth and final chapter, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What does that mean? 
Well, on the one hand, it means when the 14-year-old girl says, I love him. You say, no, you don't. No, you don't. It means be careful about the relationships you get into. Don't become too intimate with someone until you're married to that person. It means don't rush into things you're not prepared for. That's one of the things it means. Do not awaken love until it desires. There's an appropriate place for the relationship between men and women, and that place is in marriage in that intimate, covenant way. And outside of that relationship, be careful. It'll hurt you. It's not what God intends. But I want to flip it around. So I kind of want to say, but what happens when it's never the right time? What happens when I'm ready to be married and there's no men who want to be married to me? What happens when I'm single and I'm 25, I'm 35, I'm 65, and I'm not married? I want to talk about today why that's an increasingly common and heartbreaking situation for people, not just in our congregation, although there are many of us, but also in the wider world. And I want to use as my framing verse this morning Jesus' words to his followers in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus says, you're my followers. I'm sending you out into a difficult, cruel, broken, untrustworthy world. Be aware of that. Be street smart. Learn how the world actually works. A lot of the book of Proverbs is teaching us how the world actually works. Learn the facts and then live in knowledge of those facts in my name. Be as wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Sometimes translations say be as shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. So in the idea of being as wise as a serpent, I'd like to point out some reasons why it's the case that it's harder and harder for women to find marriageable, eligible men in our culture. Let me just say, don't shoot the messenger, all right? I'm just pointing out what is actually true. And you'll have to admit, I think these things are pretty obviously true. All right, so the dating site OkCupid allowed some of its data to be aggregated together by some people who studied it. And what they discovered after looking at millions and millions and millions of connections made on OkCupid and the resulting dates and even marriages is this, when it comes to women's ages and the ages of the men that they find appropriate or most attractive. Here we go. Here's the first chart. So on the left side in the dark are the women's ages. On the right in the red are the men's ages that they find to be the ideal man, the perfect man in certain different ways. So you'll see that although around age 30, the men get a little bit younger than the women, in general, the ages kind of stack up. So if you're a 20-year-old woman, you kind of think a 23-year-old guy, according to OkCupid, is the ideal person. If you're a 41-year-old woman, maybe a 38-year-old guy. So there's not too much disparity. Here's another way of looking at the data, which I find helpful. If you look at this next chart, the red plots are corresponding to the men's desirable ages, and the women are on the left. And you can see that the line would be where if they matched up perfectly. So they're not perfectly matched up. And again, after age 30, sorry, guys, you're going downhill. But in general, it lines up pretty well. Okay. Now, please don't shoot the messenger, all right? Let me just ask you, before we look at the next slide, 
If we were to switch this around for men and their ages and the ideal woman, it's according to OkCupid's okay data, not survey, but their actual data that people have acted upon, what do you think it would say? All right, here it is. Check it out. Look at the next slide. So on the left are the men's ages, and on the right are the women's ages that the men of OK Cupid find to be the, their ideal woman, the women that they are looking towards. Now, I would ask you to raise your hand if you're surprised by this data, but nobody would raise his hand. Nobody raised her hand, right? Look at this. 20-year-old men prefer 20-year-old women. Okay, we get that. 21-year-old men, 20-year-old women, 22-year-old men, 21, 23, 21, 24, 21, 35, 20, 39, 20, 47, 20. Facts are your friends. I didn't create this. I'm reporting it. And honestly, is anyone surprised by this? Is anyone possibly surprised by this? Look at the magazine covers right at the eye level of our children when we walk through the supermarket checkout line. No, I don't have any data for this, but I'm willing to say strongly that those numbers have probably been like that since forever. It's just the way it is. I don't think that's good. I don't think it's the way it should be, but I'm telling you that's the way it is. See, here's the thing. It's a broken world. It's a fallen world. This is one of the central teachings of the Christian faith. The world is not the way God wants it to be. Every single part of the world is fallen, twisted, perverted. That's just what perverted mean, to be twisted. It's broken. This is why there's mudslides that kill people and little children get cancer. It's also why our desires are not the guide to what's right or wrong. See, our desires are also fallen. I believe this data actually represents what men desire, but I don't believe it's the way God wants it to be. But either way, it's the way reality is right now. Facts are your friends. That's what things are like. That's why we can't use our desires, what comes natural to us, to decide what's right and wrong. Because our desires are fallen. They're broken. They lead us in the wrong direction. But knowing that, I think, is an important fact. So if I were talking to my little girl and being totally honest with her, I would say, not that it's good, not that I approve of it, but it is a fact that men will find her more valuable as a potential wife and spouse when she is younger. I'm not saying that's good. I'm saying it's just a fact. And it gets even worse. See, I believe that's been true for all history. This data is internet dating data, but I believe that's probably true for all history. But you know what's worse? Is that we have now pulled down certain guardrails we had in our culture in times immemorial, that try to somewhat correct the imbalance or try to, what? Restrain some of the most wicked and evil impulses in the hearts of men. I'm gonna be talking about men next week, 
So we'll come to that. But today I just want to talk about how these changes and ideas affect women. Now imagine a big pool, a big group of all the people in our society, both men and women. Very roughly, there's equal numbers of men and women. But there are not equal numbers of marriageable men and women for a variety of reasons. Now, one reason is, i got to be careful how I talk about this because we got children present. One reason is men and women desire that intimate thing that happens between people. They desire that in different ways. Not one way is better or one way is worse. I'm not talking some kind of stereotype or character. I'm just saying we basically know that's true. And you know I can prove it to you? There are no men of the night. There are no men of the evening, right? There are ladies of the night and ladies of the evening. Why? Because there's a market for it. Men will pay for that. Women don't pay for that. You don't see women busted for that on the side of the road or their picture in the paper. Now, there might be some rare exceptions. I'm I'm talking very broadly here. But that will show you how men and women value this thing in a different way. Let's speak in crass economic terms. Men value that thing in a different way. And it used to be the case that what we as a culture, and frankly, as far as I know, most cultures that have ever been around have said, we know what men's hearts are like. We also know that for them to get this thing that they seem to desire in a certain way, women have a right to expect men to shape up and act like grown men, to be prepared to exercise their responsibilities as husbands and fathers. It didn't always work, but there was major consequences for when it didn't. Women said in the words of the Spice Girls, I can't believe I'm quoting them, if you want to get with me, you got you to prove yourself to me, right? you got to show that you're a good guy. You had your act together. And then, and only then, and after we're married, these things will happen. I'm not implying that everybody lived up to that code. I'm not saying the past was some golden age. Absolutely not. I'm just saying there were certain cultural guardrails that we have been tearing down. And unfortunately, one of the results of our destruction has been to favor men at the expense of of women when it comes to the marriage market. Now, imagine this big grouping of people, all of everybody in our culture. This end is the end of commitment, and this end is the end of hooking up, no commitment. Okay, see the big polarity? There's always been men down here, forever, always. There's been men who've used war and other opportunities like that to exercise their desires over here, always. It's always happened. It's wicked, but it's always happened. But on this end, there's always been the cultural idea of commitment, and man, you need to be prepared to be committed to gain these benefits. One of the things that's been happening is that we have less and less men that are even kind of of marriageable material over here. Although men and women are roughly equivalent in our culture, you know there's more and more men that are kind of dropping out of society. More women today are college graduates than men. We're turning out more college graduates. All kinds of male problems, which we'll talk about next week. Major, major dysfunction and toxicity over here. So if you are an upstanding young woman, there's just less men that are of marriageable material. But then also one of the problems is there's not many, but there's sort of more women who've been taught, you just gotta go ahead and, and lower your standards to meet whatever he wants. 
And that's basically what our culture is telling women. It seems crazy because it seems like the exact opposite of what we should be telling them, but it's sort of like that. Go ahead and lower your standards and give the man what he wants down here. And so that means you have also men who are not incentivized to move into the commitment side over here. They don't care. They can live in their parents' basement, get the benefits that they want from their girlfriends, and that's what they're going to do. Now, on any individual level, it may not matter. But on a whole social level, you see what that means. And this is why we have so many amazing single women in our church and so many fewer single men. We have some. I'm not discounting those of you. But there are sm- there's more of a disproportion between the numbers. So if I was talking to my daughter, I would have to tell her those things just frankly. This is just true. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's the way it should be or the way God wants it to be. I'm not saying it's just. In fact, it's the like, picture of unjust. It's injustice. But it's true. It means it's not a fair playing field. It means that if you're a young woman who wants to be married, there's a heck of a lot less young men who might want to be married to you. And those that are marriageable material are often snapped up as quickly as possible. It also means this, and hear me. I'm telling you this is going to sting. I'm just telling you the truth. I do not believe that a woman's value is being a wife and a mother. I do not believe that. I do not believe, we'll come to this at the end, that marriage is what completes you as a person, despite what Jerry Maguire says. I do not believe that's true. However, I'm going to be honest with you, and this is anecdotal. I'm not even saying this is true of everybody in society. I'm just saying it's true of the people that I know. Most of the women that I know who are single want to be married. It's just true. And that also means dealing with reality as it is, not as we wish it would be, that there is a window when it is going to be most likely and easiest for you to be married as a young woman, and once that window is passed, it will become increasingly difficult. I'm not saying that being a mother or being married is better than being in in your career. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if you devote the first 10, 15 years not to marriage but to other pursuits, it could be the case that you are going to look back and wish that you had made choices differently. I know that's bitter. I know that's hard. I'm just telling you the truth. I've just come to believe that at least in church, we've got to talk about reality as it actually is. And I would say that to my little girl too. And that's a hard word. And it is totally unfair. But the world is unfair and that's the way it is. Jesus says, be wise as serpents. So my word to my little girl is going to be, be wise. Be wise. Live in the world as it is. Be wise. But it's not the only message. See, Christ didn't just come to give us wisdom to explain the brokenness and fallenness of the world, but also to give us hope. So I also want to tell her, be hope. Be hopeful. Christ has overcome the world. This may be how the world is. I think it is. But it is not how God has called the church to exist in this world. We are meant to testify to our living hope and to live in a countercultural way. So what I'm also going to tell my little girl is this. Your value does not come from what society says. It doesn't matter if you're 16 and you're supposed to look 21 or 31 and you're supposed to look 21 or 51 and you're supposed to look 21. God created you in his image. Jesus died for you. You are a pearl of great price. I'm going to tell my little girl that. I'm also going to tell her this. 
that when it comes to the men in her life, she has the power. I don't mean when it comes to jobs. I don't mean it comes to political power or advancement. I'm not talking about abuse, any of those things. I'm talking about she has the power and the right to say, if you are not behaving or wanting to commit the way that I need you to behave and commit, I am not going to X. I'm gonna talk to my little girl and the women and men in our church about celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage, period, because we're the church. You know how the environment works? You know how pollution works? One little wrapper, one little cigarette butt doesn't really make a whole lot of a difference. But when the whole culture does it, all of a sudden the place is overfilling with, filling with trash and filth. In the same way, it may seem like these are larger cultural changes we can't make a difference to, but as the church, we're called to be hopeful, to live into that reality. We're the kind of people who pick up other people's trash out in the park. We keep our place clean and beautiful and neat because we think it matters. In the same way, our personal choices actually do matter. And if you are a follower of Jesus, he's calling you to go against the tide, to be countercultural, to live in a different way. I'm gonna tell my little girl that Jesus has called her to live a different way towards celibacy and singleness and fidelity in marriage. And that will be difficult and it will be hard. It will be unpopular and countercultural, but that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And any man who wants to be with her needs to know that she is a pearl of great price and she has the absolute right and dignity to demand that other people behave in the way that they need to towards her. I'm gonna tell her that. I'm gonna tell all of you that as well. We are a church. We are, what does Jesus say? We're like a little bit of yeast that leavens the whole loaf, or a little bit of salt that preserves the whole thing from going bad. We may have small numbers, but our behavior matters in the world in ways that are greater than we can imagine. I'm gonna tell my little girl that. I'm also gonna tell her this, that the church is a place where though it might, it might seem better or preferable to be married, the church is a place where God calls all of us into different kinds of relationships. One of the blessings of the church is that it's a place for the married and the single, the old and the young, to be knit together as one body, one family, one people. I don't tell my little girl that it's in the church she needs to find her relationships, find her hope, make her friends, and so on. But I'm also gonna tell her this. See, it might be the case, God willing, that I'm there one day and the doors open, the organ begins, and my girl walks down the aisle to be married. But it might also be the case that my little girl will be always the bridesmaid and never the bride. It might be the case that she's 25 and invited to weddings and 35 and 45. And here's what I'm also gonna tell her. In the words of the apostles, Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says this. He has this part of his life he doesn't want. I don't think it's the case, but maybe it's the case that he was single and wanted to be married. Or maybe it was the case that he wished he had had children. Or maybe it's the case that he has cancer and he's not been cured. I'm not sure what it is, but I know that one of the things that's true about life, the world as it is, is that life does not come the way we want it to come. I know that in my own life. I know that about your stories. And Paul says this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times, over and over again, I said, God, I want to be married. I have been faithful how come I'm not married? Over and over again, I prayed, God, free me from my cancer. I prayed, find a wife for my son or a husband for my daughter. I prayed, Lord, bring that marriage back together. Free this person. Lord, I've been praying for this or that thing over and over and over in my personal life, which is not the way I want it to be. Paul says, three times I prayed. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's the message of the gospel. God takes weakness, and he uses it in a particular way. I don't believe that God calls everybody to marriage, and I do not believe that marriage completes you and that when you are married, you're a full man or a full woman. On the contrary, Jesus was never married. He lived a full life right in the presence and the power of God. But it would also be false to act as if marriage is not a good thing or the thing that God is calling most of us. It would be false to act as if marriage is not normative for us. It's a good thing. God's calling most of us to marriage. I really believe that. Which means I can't say to you if you're single and want to be married, oh well, it's not that big of a deal. Get over it. Just as I don't say to you if you have cancer and want to be uh, cured from it, oh well, get over it. Or if you want to have children and can't conceive, oh well, get over it. We don't say that. We commiserate with you. We hold your hand. If my little girl wants to be married and she's not married and wondering why, I'm not going to just tell her to shrug it off and go about her business. I'm going to say that it's not a good thing. Paul doesn't claim that this affliction he has is good. But what he says is that God is good in the midst of our difficulties and afflictions. And you know what the clearest picture of that is? Crucifixion. Here you have the Son of God himself, humiliated, beaten, crucified, as he slowly asphyxiates on the cross. But three days later, Easter Sunday morning, God does the most surprising, amazing thing with the most vile obscenity. He turns it into something amazing. And here's what I can tell my little girl and all of you, regardless of where life takes you. You may be single and want to be married, and I can't promise you falsely that you will definitely be married. I don't know. You may have cancer and want to be cured, and I cannot promise you for sure that God will cure you of your cancer. And you may want to conceive children, and you can, and I can't promise you that you will. But I can promise you this. That one day, everything sad will become untrue. And in the resurrection power of Jesus, all of our afflictions will become as irrelevant to our future glory in Christ as the wounds on his hands, which became scars after Easter Sunday morning. So friends, be wise. Know the world as it is. But be hopeful. Live into that hope. We're the church, and we know the good news that Christ has overcome the world. And that's my word to you today in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And now we get the beautiful opportunity to live into that by the sacrament of baptism and the reception of new members. We're the church. We're different. We're countercultural. And we have a hope and a wisdom that the world is desperate to have. So here's how we're going to close our service. I'm going to run downstairs real quick and put on my bathing costume. You are not dismissed. We're all going to make our way out front to the baptistry there. If you're getting baptized, get down close among the, get to the water. Your friends and family there too. Those new members be out there as well. And just to make sure that none of you get to Luby's early, we have ice cream waiting for you at the end of the baptismal ceremonies. On your way out, make sure you take 
the list of baptismal responses you'll need to the front steps. Grab a bracelet. I'll see you out there in like 90 seconds. Make your way out.